Offering my most loving pranams at Bhagwan's lotus feet. Dear listeners, I welcome you to this week's episode of the Gita series. A very warm, holy and happy Navratri to all of you. Wherever you are and whichever part of the world, we hope you are enjoying this beautiful period of the year which is very conducive for one's spiritual sadhana. And Swami has so graciously made it a part of our year so that we remember that this is the time we celebrate the divine aspect in the form of the mother and it is indeed very beautiful that we are talking about this particular chapter that we are going through the seventh chapter during the navratri because there is immense similarity between what krishna explains in this chapter as we have seen and the celebration of navratri itself as swami has told us what it means what it means to celebrate the prakriti what it means to worship the mother in creation we will make a few references to that as uh, those of you who have been part of this pilgrimage along with me over these many months and in fact years know that we are in the conclusion of one of the very beautiful chapters the seventh chapter is what we have completed last week uh, we completed going through all the verses and as we have traditionally been following it is time now to go through a summary of that entire chapter because as we go through the verses one by one and in fact going through the verses word by word it sometimes might happen that we lose the idea of the theme of that entire chapter or the idea that is being conveyed as a chapter in a whole as well as the context of that chapter in the entire gita so it has always been useful to go back to these summaries and uh, i know that the explanation itself could be very exhaustive so even if we want to go back and listen going through the summaries is pretty useful that's what i've heard from some of the listeners so i invite you to join me in the summary of the 7th chapter the chapter itself is called gnana vigyana yoga and it gets that name because right in the second verse of this chapter itself krishna makes the statement that he's going to teach gnana and vigyana in detail talking about the chapter itself uh, a fair but not necessarily accurate division of the chapters of the gita itself suggests that the first 6 chapters of the gita krishna spoke about the nature of the individual the jivatma we all would have heard the vedantic mahavakya tat tvam asi in that tat refers to brahman tvam refers to the individual jivatma and the declaration tatvam asi is that thou art or thou art that you are that brahman verily so the first six chapters is spoken of by some commentators as being related to the tvam aspect and from the seventh chapter krishna is going to speak about the tat aspect but as we have seen in the seventh chapter itself it is not that krishna is not going to speak about a devotee if you ask me the focus is the devotee the lord does not need the gita the lord does not need the devotion of the devotees this knowledge is important for the devotees so i feel always the focus is the individual the focus is the sadhaka so even in that sense this is not so accurate but it gives an idea of the theme that the chapter deals with in a more common way or in a more summary way krishna concluded the previous chapter by saying that there are different types of yogis but among them the yogi who is centered on him 
is greater than all the other yogis. So there is an unasked question as to why is that so? In what way is this type of yoga better than the others? So Krishna begins this chapter by explaining that. He says, Hear now how if you have your mind fixed on me, you will know me entirely. Samagram maam nyasyasi He says you will know me in my entirety. So Krishna always makes an emphasis on this. It is not that we don't know the Lord, but we don't know Him truly, we don't know Him entirely. The chapter begins with this, how you can know me entirely. And Krishna will also conclude with this idea of what happens when you know me in entirety. Krishna uses the term madashrayaha in this particular verse, taking refuge in me. Ashraya means the path to be more accurate. Ashraya is the path that one takes to reach the goal. So when Krishna says madashrayaha, it refers to one for whom the goal or destination is God but the path has also become God. And that is a very apt description of a devotee. And that of what Krishna explains in this chapter is going to pertain to a devotee. And in the second verse, as I mentioned, Krishna states, I shall declare to thee in full this jnana combined with vijnana. And it is from here that the chapter gets that name. And Krishna states that this is the highest knowledge because one who knows this has nothing more to know. So that is the bait, so to say, that Krishna is placing before Arjuna and all of us that I'm going to teach you something. If you learn what I'm teaching, if you understand what I'm teaching, there is nothing more for you to know. We discussed what is this jnana and vijnana. How is vijnana different from jnana? In general, when they say Vijnana, it refers to science or intellectual knowledge. right? Vijnanam is a word that we use for science. And when Jnana alone is mentioned, it is invariably a reference to the supreme knowledge, the spiritual knowledge. But when we say Jnana Vijnana, it refers to knowledge that is paroksha, seen through others' view, the views of the Jnanis and the scriptures, and Jnana that is aparoksha that which is seen by oneself, experienced by oneself. So when jnana becomes one's own experience, it is referred to as vijnana. Swami simply puts it as vijnana is visesha jnana. Right? So that direct experiential knowledge that one gets after going through the process of shravana, manana and nididhyasana, when that knowledge becomes part of my nature, that is referred to as Vijnana. So when Krishna says, I'm going to teach you Jnana, Vijnana, it can mean one of two things. Right? We can say it means both of these things. One is that what he is going to teach is partly there in the scriptures, but some of it cannot be found in books because it is Vijnana, it is coming out of experience. The other way of seeing it is, Krishna is not teaching like any other teacher who learns from a book and repeats in a class. Like how I am doing on this program. I have read it from a book, I have heard it from Swami's discourses and I am sharing it with all of you. Right? That is the way a teacher teaches. Krishna is saying, what I am going to tell you are there in the scriptures, they are scriptural truths, but I am going to tell you as one who is in the state of a jnani. Right? And another way of looking at it is probably a slightly extended interpretation 
Krishna is going to explain Jnana in a manner that it is going to become Vijnana for Arjuna. So he is going to teach it in such a way that Arjuna is going to have a direct experience of what is going to be explained. In the third verse, again Krishna tries to impress upon Arjuna how rare and exclusive this knowledge that he is teaching is. So the first three shlokas are still Krishna wetting the appetite of the student Arjuna. Krishna says, Manushyanam sahasreshu kaschit yatati siddhaye Out of thousands of people, some one random person strives for perfection. Yatatam api siddhanam Even of those striving perfect beings, kaschit maam veti tattvataha Some one person knows me in tattva, in essence, as I really am. This as we saw is not to scare us away. This is to show how precious this knowledge is, how much more committed we must be while paying attention to what Krishna is saying. And also to remind us that we are in this position to go through this knowledge after much struggle. When he says after thousands of people struggle, they come to learn this. And after thousands who come to learn, few become successful. Whichever state we all are in, each one of us individually can assess that for ourselves. But we are in this position where we are giving this time to the scripture because we have come through so much to reach this point. So when we acknowledge that we are at this point after an arduous journey, we will value this moment and we will be more attentive and there will be more shraddha when we are listening to this. The next two verses, verses 4 and 5, convey the crux of the idea that Krishna communicates in this entire chapter. He speaks about two types of prakriti, para and apara prakriti. We went through the relationship between these two prakritis and why is this being shared with Arjuna at this point. Swami explains this in the Gita Vaini by saying, the path of spirituality as explained in the previous verses, especially when Krishna spoke about meditation, being in a meditative state that is very essential for karma yoga, it is a very challenging thing. Swami says, it is an internal path, it's a nivritti marga and there are many internal challenges that come in this internal journey. So to be successful in this journey, Swami says that one must have shraddha and bhakti, faith and devotion. How does one develop shraddha and bhakti? When one gets to know about God and His nature, God's swabhava, Automatically, Shraddha and Bhakti develops in the aspirant. Swabhava is the hidden nature which cannot be readily seen. It is the innermost quality. But God also has what we refer to as Swarupa, a form that can be seen. To know God in entirety, as Krishna said in the first few verses is, one must be able to recognize this Swabhava of God. But for that, one must first recognize the Swarupa as being a manifestation of the Lord. The hidden unmanifest aspect of God, which is called Swabhava, is referred to as Paraprakriti and that manifest aspect of God is called Aparaprakriti. The word Para means beyond, Apara means not beyond, that which is seen, which is easily available. So Krishna explains this to Arjuna 
through Arjuna to all of us so that we can develop Shraddha and Bhakti. So the essence of this entire chapter, going through this chapter, should spring in our hearts as Shraddha and Bhakti. That is why this chapter is very useful. We are taught how to develop love and also how to progress closer to God. Once this Shraddha and Bhakti is established, we will walk on the spiritual path with focus as promised by Swami Himself. Krishna explains about Apara Prakriti in the following manner. He says, Bhumi rapo nalo vayuhu kham mano buddhirevacha ahankara Earth, water, fire, air, ether, mind, intellect and ahankara or ego sense. Iti iyam me prakritihi bhinna ashtadha This is my nature divided eightfold. Having said this, in the next shloka Krishna states, but this is only the apara aspect. After describing the apara prakriti as being eightfold, it contains the five elements and the inner instrument, instrumentalities of mind, intellect and personality. He reminds us that this is only that which is seen, the apara aspect of the Lord. And then he states, the para prakriti is also present in the universe that we see as the prana or the life that this entire creation is suffused with. And that prana is the jivatma in each one of us. Generally, Prakriti is spoken of as nature or creation that either comes about because of God's maya or it is spoken of as something created by God. Right? That's how we often hear in spiritual discourses and religious texts. Krishna clearly says that the material world as well as the soul or Atma, both have come from him and him alone. Both are his Prakriti. But what is referred to as lower manifestation or Apara Prakriti is given to constant change and modification. But the Para Prakriti, the Swabhava of the Lord, is changeless and is what holds this eightfold creation together like a string holding the beads together in a necklace. In the sixth shloka, Krishna makes it very clear that both these prakritis came from the Lord and also merge back into the Lord. And everything that we see and interact with comes from these two prakritis and nothing else. There are two questions that arise when this is stated. If God's swabhava is unchanging, how did it then become something else? The act of becoming calls for changing, isn't it? So if God's Swabhava is unchanging, how did it become this Apara Prakriti? That goes contrary to the suggestion that it is unchanging. And if everything is God, the second question is, why are we told that the world binds and we must only go after God? Though both have the same source, choosing one binds and choosing another frees. Choosing the world binds, choosing the Lord frees. The idea is this. If the Vyakti or the individual goes after the world, the Apara Prakriti, then the Vyaktitva or the individuality will be further strengthened. The idea that I am this personality. But if the Vyakti turns to God, 
then this vyaktitva, this individual sense will be sublimated and one will be able to see this truth that Krishna is explaining. So what we are trying to do when we ask this question is why can't I go after the world is we are using the same information that Krishna is giving that everything is suffused with God to further go after the world and that is only going to lead to more delusion. But Krishna is stating having accepted this fact that everything is suffused with the Lord you turn to the Lord and thereby sublimate this vyaktitva or this individuality. So in that sense it is not choosing one over the other but choosing to dissolve this individuality. Right, That is the choice that needs to be made. When I think of myself as an Indian I am looking beyond my individuality. When I think of myself as a citizen of the world I am seeing beyond my nationality. In the same manner when I think of myself as being one with God, I am negating all identities that come with this body. I am refusing to go after the apara prakriti and I am seeing the para, the supreme. Right, And this is the essence of this chapter and also the festival that we are all observing right now, isn't it? It is not that nature should not be enjoyed, but enjoy nature, enjoy prakriti, recognizing its divine origin. With the desire to have the vision of the divine, you can enjoy the bounty of nature, right? Recognizing and acknowledging divinity as the unseen foundation of this entire nature is the idea that this chapter is speaking of and that is the idea that the celebration of Navratri also stands for. And about the unchanging Swabhava becoming this creation, how is that possible? That is where the concept of Maya comes in. The separation itself is an illusion. The one is always one, it is unchanging, it never changed and the many is Mitya. The word used in Vedanta is not Asatya but Mitya. It appears to be very very true but it is untrue, like a mirage. That's why in the seventh verse of this chapter Krishna reiterates that there is nothing higher than him or that para prakriti. The swabhava of the Lord has come to be known as para because of we considering something as being apara, right? So Krishna, the Supreme Lord, has not become para prakriti. The Supreme Lord remains para prakriti because we are speaking of something as being apara. Just like when a child is born, the same woman now becomes a mother, now gets the title of a mother. There is not a transformation into a different person. It's the same person now being called a mother because of the birth of the child. Right? Similarly, the changeless aspect gets the name para prakriti with the manifestation of the apara. But the Lord is present through all this like the unseen thread that runs through the beads. Right? That's an analogy that keeps coming repeatedly. From the 8th shloka, Krishna mentions how he continues to exist in each aspect of nature. And this is the portion where many, many examples are given. So, I'll quickly list them out verse-wise in this verse what Krishna says and the next verse what Krishna says. So, in this verse, these are the examples that he gives. Rasaha aham apsu In water, I am taste. Prabhasmi 
Shashi Suryo Ho. I am the effulgence in the sun and the moon. Pranavaha Sarva Vedeshu. I am Pranava or Omkar in all the Vedas. Shabdaha Khe. Sound in the Akasha or ether. Paurusham Nrishu. Vitality in the individual. We spoke of all these in detail. We will not go into each one of them in as much detail again. Then the summary will become endless, as endless as the chapter itself was. But just a couple of points, just reminding ourselves. We spoke of the significance of Krishna stating, I am Pranava. Pranava or Omkara is considered the unmanifest source of all sound, right? And from there, the Vedas have come. The Vedas were seen. Those were the seen manifestation of the unseen Pranava. And Krishna is saying, I am that Pranava from where all this, these Vedas have come. We spoke extensively thereafter about Omkara. I gave some examples from different Upanishads. And the last statement that Krishna makes in this verse, Paurusham Nrishu is translated generally as, I am the manliness in man. But Swami clearly states in Gita Vahini that Paurusham does not stand for manliness or masculinity. It stands for adventurousness that is needed to propel one on a spiritual quest. So, Swami clearly states Paurusham Nrishu means I am that one aspect in you which pushes you on the spiritual journey. Coming to the ninth verse, Krishna continues these examples. He says, Punyoho Gandha Prithivyam. I am the sweet fragrance in the earth. Tejaha Asmi Vibhavasau. I am the brilliance in the fire. Jeevanam Sarvabhuteshu. The life force in all beings. Tapaha Asmi Tapasvishu. I am the austerity in the ascetics. These set of examples and some of the examples from the previous ones suggest that the approach is to try and see divinity in the pleasant aspects of creation and also the essential aspects of creation, what makes an entity what it is. So these examples on one hand is a reference to the features that define these entities and on the other hand it is the most pleasant or most useful aspect in each one of these entities. The list continues in the next two shlokas as well. Krishna says, Bijam maam sarvabhutanam I am the seed in all beings. Buddhir buddhimatam asmi I am the intelligence in the intelligence in the intelligent. Tejaha tejasvinam aham I am the splendor of the splendid. We again discussed what are the layers of meaning in this very profound statement Bijam Maam Sarvabhutanam one of the phrases from the Gita that Swami has repeatedly quoted many times in his discourses. Bijam means a seed. A seed is unique to what is born from that. In that sense, every entity has a unique seed. The uniqueness of that entity is contained in a seed which is its essential nature and Krishna says, I am that. Also, when we talk of a seed, a seed is representative of the knowledge of that entire process from birth to death. A banyan tree or an apple tree 
the seed of that tree has all the information required for that seed to become the tree, isn't it? And that's what is being referred to here when Krishna says, Bhijam Mam Sarvabhutana. The other point that uh, Swami says in the Gita Vahini that we also went through, if you look at any tree, the bark, the leaves, the fruit, the unripe fruit, the flowers, all of these appear different, but they all have the same seed as the source. So when Krishna says, Bijam Mam Sarvabhutanam, the other meaning is, this varied universe that you see, people might look different, beings might appear different, but they all have the single source, that is me. The whole statement that Krishna makes in that context is, Bijam Mam Sarvabhutanam Vidhi Partha Sanatanam. The word Sanatana in that statement suggests that he is the unchanging one. He is the supreme one. He does not have a source. I am the seed for this universe. Is there a seed for the Lord himself? No, he is the Sanatana, suggesting that he is the eternal substratum or the Adhara on which everything else stands as Adhiya. The 11th shloka, Krishna adds few more examples but they have some other important inputs as well. The first statement is Krishna saying, I am the strength of the strong. Balam balavata masmi. But not any strength. He refers to a specific kind of strength. That bala, which is free from karma and raga, desire and attachment. Then he says, Dharma aviruddho bhuteshu kamosmi. Among the creatures, I am that karma or desire which is not contrary to righteousness and morality. Dharma aviruddho bhuteshu kamosmi. These two statements are very profound and very educative for us. God is present even as strength and desire within us. But the purest form of expression is when that strength is not used to assert desire and attachment and when that desire is not immoral or contrary to what is dharma. This portion of the Gita might give the idea that only that which is good and pleasant in the world is divine, right? When he says, I am the punya gandha, I am the pleasant smell in the earth, the question comes, what about the foul smell? What about the smell of that which rots, right? When you walk into a garden, when the leaves, dry leaves are rotting, it gives a very foul smell. So isn't the foul smell not God? Isn't the destructive power of fire not God? Isn't the blazing nature of the sun not God, right? So this portion of the Gita might give that idea that Krishna is saying only the pleasant aspects of nature is me. Krishna clarifies that in the 12th verse where he says, All beings, be they sattvic, rajasic or tamasic, all are from me. All have me as the source. And he also states that they are in him, but he is not in them. A statement which can confuse a little. But the idea is that the relationship between creation and creator is not completely defined when we make the statement that God is the indweller in everything. Because here Krishna is saying, I am not in them, they are in me. The idea is that he is the adhara, the substratum. Creation is nothing but a brief appearance on this adhara that God is. 
just like the best example is of course the waves and the ocean the waves appear in the ocean for a brief moment the ocean is always there in the 13th verse krishna says all beings that belong to this world are deluded by this threefold nature of prakriti the satvik rajasik and tamasik and hence do not recognize god this threefold nature of all objects is what is referred to as maya the deluding force of the lord and in the next shloka krishna says that this is my maya and it is difficult to cross why does this world delude because by nature it is subject to change it is undergoing the shadvikaras the six types of changes and in that distraction we miss seeing beyond this changing world and seeing the unchanging supreme he says na abhijanati mam they do not recognize me ebhya param avyayam as i am beyond all this and i am changeless i am immutable krishna states the solution to overcome this maya in this shloka itself he says mameva ye prapadyante maya metam tarantite those who take refuge in me alone cross over this maya from this shloka the dual nature of maya can be seen on one hand krishna says it is my maya it is my instrument on the other hand he states that it also deludes while going through this chapter we had discussed this very dual nature of maya itself maya is the mother that fosters at the same time it is also the enchantress that deludes i had read this very beautiful line from swami's words and probably i'll repeat that again where swami said maya is the mirror in which brahman is reflected as the personalized god the ishta devata man and nature we are able to know brahman through nature which is saturated with it or identifiable with it end of quote so the most important point is maya also becomes a means to adore god as swami is clearly stating there brahman reflects on this mirror of maya as that ishta devata with whom the devotee strikes a relationship and that relationship becomes the basis of one's spiritual journey so in this part of the gita krishna has been referring to this aspect of nature maya and prakriti is one and the same because krishna had described prakriti as having three gunas and he also describes maya also having the same nature of the three gunas the festival that we are observing even as we are going through this uh, chapter the navratri is a time when we worship this motherly aspect of maya because it is she who fosters and she who provides but when the divine is seen in nature that same mother who fosters this body becomes a means to go beyond the deluding or the distracting quality that she poses in front of us as prakriti that is why dashara is a very significant celebration so the same maya becomes a means to god and also an obstacle to god depending on the way we are approaching it the question is to whom does the mother play the role of the deluder to whom does she play 
the role of a facilitator. So in the 15th shloka, Krishna explains who are likely to be befooled by Maya. That is, who are likely not to take refuge in God. Krishna says, the dushkritinaha, evildoers, asuram bhavam ashritaha, those that have resorted to a demonic nature or lifestyle, they get further deluded by this Maya. We had also discussed, here Krishna is not speaking of those who make random mistakes due to weakness in character, but those who have embraced this kind of a lifestyle when one is ready to do anything to fulfill one's own desires and ambitions and aspirations. And over lifetimes, this has come to become their nature and they are referred to as Dushkritinaha. Krishna refers to such people also as Mayaya Apahritagnanaha, those whose wisdom or good sense has been stolen by Maya. So when one resorts to this kind of selfishness over a period of time, they become Mayaya Apahritagnanaha, those whose Knowledge has been further stolen away by Maya. In the next shloka, Krishna speaks of those that are good by nature, the opposite of Dushkritinaha. Not that these people are not deluded, but at least they try to lead a moral life. Even though they are also deluded and going after delusion, they are at least striving to lead a moral life. So Krishna says, among those that take to a virtuous means of living, and those who have turned to God, there are four types. Artaha, the distressed or who are in some crisis or in some need. Jignasuhu, the seeker of knowledge. Artharthi, the seeker of wealth. And Jnani, the wise one. We then went through a passage from Gita Vaini where Swami says, Devotion is perfect when there is no expectations from the Lord. But as long as we have desires, as long as we are in this body, as long as we are in samsara, there will be desires, there will be aspirations. But it is better to turn to God instead of turning to others around us who are as much deluded as we are. So even turning to God for petty worldly achievements is not an ordinary thing. It is an improvement over being dependent on oneself and those around you. right? And even these types, Swami stated, how they are progressive steps, Artha, Artharthi and Jignasu, eventually one progresses through these various types of devotees leading up to the Jnani. So, Shlokas 17, 18 and 19 of this chapter, Krishna goes on to briefly describe why this Jnani or this state of being a Jnani is special and in doing so, Krishna also gives tips to us who fall in these different categories and who are aspiring to become the Jnani devotee of the Lord. Krishna says, A Jnani is a Nitya Yuktaha who is ever steadfast, Eka Bhaktihi, whose devotion is one-pointed. Swami contrasts this with the other three types of devotees. He says, when you come to God with a desire, you are not devoted to God, but you are devoted to that desire and you are seeking God as a means to attain that desire. And that is also the reason 
Krishna does not use the word devotees when he says these four types of people who are good doers or who have turned to a good way of life. He says, among those that worship me, there are four categories. Chatur vidha bhajante maam janaha. He does not say devotees, those who worship me, those who adore me. Bhajante is the word that he uses. So by describing the jnani as nitya yuktaha and ekabhaktihi, Krishna is giving us that hint that unlike the others who are devoted to various things and turn to God, the jnani is one who is devoted not to the world, not to these various things, but devoted to God himself. Then Krishna makes a beautiful statement. He says, Aham jnaninaha atyartham priyaha hi. Verily, I am the most beloved for a jnani. Sacha mama priyaha. And he is dear to me. Swami would say many times, I am as close to you as you think I am. When Swami becomes the focus of our life, automatically we become the focus for Swami. When He becomes the dearest to us, we become the dearest to Him. And that's the very statement that Krishna is making here. Aham jnaninaha atyatha priyaha hi sacha mama priyaha Because the jnani considers me as the dearest and devote most desirable, he becomes dearest to me. In the 18th shloka, Krishna says, all four, the Artha, Artharthi, Jignasu and Jnani, they all are blessed. But when it comes to a Jnani, Krishna says, I see him as myself. Because a Jnani seeks nothing but the Lord. Maam eva anuttamam gathim. For the Jnani, I am the goal and not merely the means. Anuttamam gathi means I am the ultimate goal. He does not seek anything else but only me. The jnani is one who has recognized that nothing else is worth seeking in this world. And the more that thought solidifies, one becomes more and more desireless. And as Swami would say, man minus desires is equal to God. The more desireless one becomes, the more complete and perfect one feels. And that state is one with the divine state. And that is why Krishna states that the jnani begins to see his true self as being one with the Lord. In the 19th verse, Krishna states clearly that this is not a state that is reached easily or in a very short period of time. He says, Bahunam janmanam ante jnanavan maam prapadyate At the end of many lifetimes of effort, he takes refuge in me. And the most profound statement in that shloka is, Maam prapadyate Vasudevaha Sarvamiti He takes refuge in me believing all this is Vasudeva Maam Prapadyate Vasudevaha Sarvamiti Again a reiteration of a point that Krishna has made several times before in the Gita The true state of a Jnani is to see the divine in all to see the same self in everything In fact Swami says that this statement, Vasudevaha Sarvam, is in itself a mantra. A devotee who wishes to reach that jnani state should treat this as a mantra and constantly remember Vasudevaha Sarvam. The Lord is present in all. And Swami clearly says Vasudeva is not a reference to Krishna. The one who lives in every jiva is referred to as Vasudeva. From the 20th 
verse to the end of the chapter, Krishna speaks of those who are deluded and how they are deluded. And of course, towards the end, Krishna goes back to speaking about those who have who are trying to overcome this delusion. So we are in the twentieth uh, verse. So in this verse, he says that people get deluded by the desires for various things, and they end up becoming devotees of other deities. And that's a very interesting concept that Krishna introduces in this portion of the Gita, and it can be a concept that confuses too. He says, when you have many desires in turn to God, you become devotees of Anya Devatas, other deities. A jnani is characterized by two qualities that are complementary. One, there are no desires for worldly objects, and hence the jnani seeks only the Lord. And when the Lord is approached with such an attitude, the jnani sees the Lord as being everything. So the others are just the opposite of these two qualities of the jnani. Because they have desires, they go before God for the fulfillment of those desires. And that means you want grace only in some forms. I can specifically go and say, this is the event I want to happen in my life. Which means I can see the manifestation of grace only when it happens in this particular manner, in this pleasant happening. Which means I am unable to see the Lord as being Vasudeva, as being present in all situations, in all beings. When the devotee looks upon the Lord as being limited, the devotee becomes a worshipper of a deity, an Anya Devata. So there are not in reality many deities. The same Lord becomes a lesser deity when we seek lesser things from Him. The term Anya Devata also can be seen as suggesting that the devotee sees the Lord as being the other, being distant, Anya, right? That is another interpretation of that statement. And when you become a worshipper of these Anya Devatas, you end up following the Niyamas or the disciplines and processes that are due to that worship of that form. Tam Tam Niyamam Asthaya Rite or rituals that is necessary to please that deity is followed to earn the desired boon. Prakritya Nihataha Swaya Led by one's own nature Meaning, this desire is based on one's own nature. What is it that we go and seek from the Lord? Why that particular desire? That comes from the Prakriti. And as we have seen in the earlier chapters, that Prakriti comes out of the desire which has solidified over many lifetimes. In the 21st verse, Krishna gives a beautiful assurance. He says, Whichever deity one may choose to worship, in other words, Whatever be the desire you may come to me with, I strengthen your faith through that very means itself. In the 22nd verse, he says, Using that Shraddha, the 21st he said, I strengthen that Shraddha. In the 22nd he says, Using that Shraddha, which has now been strengthened by me, the devotee worships the deity of his or her choice and gains what was prayed for. But that blessing is also given only by me, is what Krishna stated. We also discussed about that very interesting play of words, what Krishna is cryptically stating. The statement in that shloka is, Labhate cha tataha, he obtains from it, meaning the worship that he performs, 
kamaan maya eva vihitan hitan the desired as ordained verily by me that statement labate vihitan hitan if you see hita as two words he and tan it means he gets that particular thing which he desired for he tan but as adi shankara says if you see it as one word labhate vihitan hitan you will get the meaning that the devotee will be blessed with what is hita what is beneficial for her or him sometimes not to have our prayers answered is beneficial for us and when that happens it only strengthens our faith we have gone through a few examples to understand this and hita is also used to denote what is spiritually beneficial so that statement that krishna is making is a very profound and very cryptic statement that it is me who blesses whichever deity you worship but i bless you with that which is hita that which will lead you to a higher spiritual state sometimes your prayers being answered is hita sometimes it being delayed or even denied is hita so accordingly the lord responds though krishna validated their devotion and approach those who worship anya devatas even though he said that he is the one who answers the prayers in the next shloka the 23rd verse he reminds of how the blessings will be limited or short lived he had said antavantu phalam tesham tat bhavatya alpamedhasam why is the fruit of such prayer limited because the nature of what is sought itself is limited ephemeral if i ask for a fruit a real fruit for swami let's say not the phalam that krishna is speaking here i go and ask swami for a real fruit the fruit by nature will rot after few days even though it has been given by god the fruit has its own nature of being limited in its life span right and that is what krishna refers to here because what you seek is limited what you seek is anitya the blessing becomes anitya in that nature and interestingly krishna refers to them as alpamedhasam those with small intelligence or limited intelligence we discussed how this is like standing before the vast ocean with a tiny vessel even though the ocean is vast even though the ocean is eternal when we take a tiny quantity of water from it the water evaporates after a period of time and the way to make this vessel bigger if i have to go before this vast ocean with a larger vessel swami says the means is to broaden one's heart and that is done by practicing the two points that krishna has been stating trying to visualize the lord in all and trying to reduce one's desires he also made a very important statement in that very verse he had said deva yajah devan yanti madbhaktaha yanti mamapi the worshipers of gods reach those gods while those who worship me reach me so though the process is the same worshiping is the whole process the goal makes all the difference those who worship for lesser things attain these lesser goals but those who seek the lord because he is the anuttamam gatim there is nothing beyond him he is the last stop in the destination so those who seek him attain the absolute after which there is nothing to be sought the 24th shloka 
again is a very deep and important shloka with multiple meanings krishna says the men of poor intellect the abuddhayaha are not conscious of the higher changeless and supreme nature of mind and hence think of me as the unmanifest that has now become manifest we had discussed the various implications of the statement this is a reminder that the swabhava never changes it is always supreme and this could also be a specific statements about avatars because when krishna is standing there and saying that you reach me you will please me you will attain me it is not to understand that krishna is speaking about the avatar krishna right the supreme has manifested as an avatar but it does not mean that the unmanifest has now become manifest the unmanifest continues to be the manifest so to think of god has manifest and now unmanifest itself is a very wrong thing he is unmanifest but he is also ever manifest in this world there is no difference between the two so that is why it's a very cryptic and again a very profound statement that krishna makes there the next two shlokas speak of a certain nature of the divine which is not obvious to the deluded and it is spoken of in a manner that even the devoted sometimes miss this nature of the lord in the 25th verse he states naham prakashah sarvasya yoga maya ayasamavritah i am not obvious to everyone because of my yoga maya when the lord is ever manifest how is it that we don't recognize him how is it that we are not able to see him he says naham prakashah sarvasya i am not available to be seen by everyone because i am shrouded by this yoga maya the deluded don't know me as ajam avyayam the unborn and changeless it is not that no one recognizes or acknowledges god because every devotee who prays somewhere believes that there is a supreme power and there is the supreme being and that is why they worship or pray but we keep forgetting this nature of his being changeless and krishna adds to this in the next shloka he says i know all beings of the past present and future but no one knows me so these two shlokas the previous one and this one as i said in a way tells us what is it that we miss as devotees we stand in front of him as devotees we worship him but what is it that we miss because of which our surrender is imperfect if we completely believe god to be ajam avyayam we will know that he is present wherever we see we will not think of now swami is not here with us now swami is not here anymore similarly when i recognize him as being all knowing i will slowly find no necessity to ask for anything the lord knows everything as he said bijam mam the seed has all the knowledge you don't have to go and tell the seed after putting it in the ground you don't have to inform the seed that no this is time for sprouting now it's time that your roots come out the knowledge is already contained in that seed right and that is why probably krishna repeatedly uses the phrase na abhijanati janati means to know abhijanati means to know perfectly or properly so na abhijanati means they don't know me properly or entirely they know me but they don't know me entirely and that's what the 
entire chapter began with, right? So the devotee knows the God, acknowledges God, but forgets to hold on to this belief of who the Lord is. He is Ajam Avyayam and he is the knower of the past, present and future. This is the symptom which makes us Artha, Artartis and Jignasus. Because we are not able to see this nature of the Lord, we are not in a position to state Vasudevam Sarvam. But what is the diagnosis and thereby the prognosis? That Krishna hints in the next shloka. He says, Icha dvesha samutthena dvandva mohena bharata Due to the delusion of duality arising from likes and dislikes. And because of this, people are born deluded. So it means this life, we are born deluded because of the likes and dislikes that we've been carrying over lifetimes. And this life and each life is an opportunity to get rid of that delusion. When we have strong likes and dislikes, as we have discussed, we tend to get attached to certain outcomes. And when we are attached to certain outcomes, there can never be surrender in that state. So slowly developing lesser attachment to what we think is good is the way forward towards this state of being a jnani. So slowly developing lesser attachment to what we think can be done when we constantly remember that the Lord knows what is the past, present and future and whatever is the manifestation of the event in front of us, it is the Lord is present in that situation too. The last three verses, 28, 29 and 30, Krishna goes back to describing those that are in the process of or have overcome the delusion. It will take me about two minutes to finish that but probably we will keep that for the next week because that also is the starting point of the next chapter. So when we start the next chapter, we'll probably start with the summary of the last three shlokas of this chapter. So with that, dear listeners, I'll probably conclude this week's episode and this summary of the seventh chapter. Thank you for joining me. I'll join you again next week. And next week in this triune pilgrimage, we'll start the eighth chapter. And along with all of you, I also will have the pleasure of going through this chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. I most humbly offer this effort at Swami's Lotus Feet. I humbly offer this entire chapter that we have completed at Swami's Lotus Feet. And I thank each one of you for joining me and for your patient company week after week. Till I meet you next time, take care, keep safe. Jai Sai Ram.